0: I'm Rajul Pandya Loj, I'm Director for Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this special event that we are proud to co-organize together with the Regional Strategic Analysis and Knowledge Support System, otherwise known by the sexy acronym of RESAX. <laughs> this event is on gender equality in rural Africa from commitments to outcomes. Our speakers today will discuss the findings and recommendations of the 2019 Annual Trends and Outlook Report, which focuses on gender equality in rural Africa. This report was launched last month in Lome, Togo, at the annual Rezax conference. And if you have not already visited the conference website or the report website, I strongly encourage you to do so. There are a number of great resources there and a number of ways to delve into this report and associated materials. We have a very strong program lined up for you today with great speakers. Without further ado, I'd like to call upon Usman Badiane. Usman is the director for Africa at Research, and I wel- welcome him to give us opening remarks.
1: Thank you, Raju. Uh, good afternoon, and uh, welcome, everybody, uh, to today's uh, policy seminar. Focusing on gender equality uh, in rural Africa from commitments to outcomes. Uh, Just a little bit to the background uh, of the reports, uh, which is uh, one of those that are prepared every year by the Regional Strategic Analysis and Knowledge Support Systems, or RESACS, which is a, um, a program established by IFPRI 15 years ago in partnership with the African Union, regional economic communities and other CG centers in Africa to support uh, the um, um, ambitions of the African Union to move towards policy based on evidence and data and analysis. So RESACs basically help build capacities for data, for analysis in the countries at the regional level, while also supporting through data and analysis the agenda itself. In particular, peer review, mutual learning, benchmarking, and uh, adoption of best practices. So the ATOR, in particular, is published annually. Uh, It looks at progress in uh, implementing the Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program, or CADEP, of the AUC and African countries. So while it's monitoring the different indicators and targets that are defined by the African Union, it also dwells in depth in a specific policy area so that we know what's the status of the evidence, what do we know, what are the lessons, where are the best practices, so they can be shared to advance that agenda. So this was the 12th uh, report that's been uh, prepared. Uh, we had the uh, conference in Lome, uh, we have the best team of editors you could have uh, working on this kind of uh, uh, topics, Ruth uh, whom, from whom you will hear and Agnes and Jemima were the three uh, co-editors and a really strong list of contributors uh, to the report. I'm sure you'll enjoy uh, the outcome of uh, what's in the report and the findings and the lessons. I'm not gonna say much about the importance of gender uh, in front of Ruth and uh, and Agnes, uh, other to say that uh, we've tried to contribute our part of it to make sure we elevate the debate and help people get resources into their hands as they move towards Uh, improving the agenda, not just on what's happening on the ground, but in people's institutions where they work, whom they partner with, what they deliver, which services, and everything that they need to do on the ground to make sure that we um, uh, handle the issue around gender as competently as possible, as effectively as possible. And I think as you will see from the presentations here, this was an amazing report. Uh, We had a conference uh, three days, uh, two and a half in Lome, well appreciated by everybody who was there. and I think it's going to remain a resource uh, for all of us uh, from the uh, regional uh, all the way to the continental country, but also our colleagues doing research on gender. Everybody will appreciate it. So, again, thanks to Ruth and Agnes and everybody who's here. And thank you to all of you. I'm sure you'll enjoy the discussions here. So, thank you. And of course, those who are in the audience uh, joining us online, welcome as well. Thank you.
0: Usman, thank you very much for providing that background. We will have a chance to hear back from you toward the end of the session. So Usman mentioned the editors. We are very lucky to have two of them right here to make the presentation followed by the third editor shortly thereafter. Our first two speakers are Ruth Meinzendig and Agnes Quisenbing, very well known to all of us. Ruth is a senior research fellow in IFPRI's Environment and Production Technology Division. Agnes, a senior research fellow in IFPRI's Poverty Health and Nutrition Division, and they've been spearheading gender work at IFPRI and around the world. They will make a joint presentation beginning with Ruth. Thank you.
2: Thank you. And thank you to Usman for the invitation to compile this ATOR report and to all the, the uh, people, in, including Emily, uh, who have helped us in, in putting this together. Um, as a starting point, we, we've we been working on uh, gender issues, especially in Africa, for a very long time. But specifically for this ATOR report, we started by looking back at the Malabo Declaration and the commitments. And what we found is that there were del- there was explicit um, in the declaration and in the commitment to have poverty—that's halve poverty, not have poverty. I always have trouble stating that. Um, there, so gender and youth and marginalized groups or disadvantaged sectors are mentioned explicitly there, but basically to meet the Uh, Malabo commitments, all of them you need to address gender. So what we did, why, is um, both men and women are engaged in agriculture in Africa, uh, 62% of the economically active women are in the agricultural sector. But these gender barriers there, um, including unequal access to resources, gaps in productivity, they not only hurt women but they limit overall sector growth. So gender addressing those inequalities um, increases the opportunities for agricultural transformation as well as poverty reduction. In order to, there's lots of topics here but we used a conceptual framework to kind of link these various topics and chapters. The important thing about this framework is that we acknowledge that every part of this is gendered. That is starting from the context through to well-being. Some things are specific to men, some things specific to women, but a lot of things are joint between them, and in each chapter and each area we look at that. So basically assets affect the livelihood strategies, shocks interact with both both assets and livelihood strategies, those lead to full incomes, which are then allocated between consumption and savings and investment, which contribute to well-being and um, feedback, uh, the savings feedback into assets for the next round. How does this play out? Starting with the context, we look at social norms, leadership, and data. In social norms, um, the chapter points out that these are very important, albeit invisible barriers that will limit women's economic empowerment. These are the the social expectations, whether that's from your family to the to your community to broader society, that shape people's. Uh, behaviors and practices. A lot of times there's this feeling that, well, social norms are just given. You can't do anything about it. Social norms change all the time, and every development intervention changes them. But shifting social norms can really have an important effect in affecting behavior. However, if you want to change those norms, it takes a deliberate investment of time and uh, resources and sort of in community mobilization. Sometimes that's not easy to scale, but we're seeing effects of this on broader scales now. Um, and it, but it does require understanding what is the existing condition and creating space and engagement that leads us to leadership. Again, there's a lack of gender parity in the leadership, political leadership, but also in the agricultural sector. And that's despite a lot of evidence that shows that gender diversity in leadership contributes to growth of organizations and of society at large. In particular, there's a leading leaky pipeline of African agricultural scientists, um, and especially of women. So they're not, move, we're not seeing that growth in higher positions of decision making. Uh, so for example, only uh, 24% of the total agricultural researchers are, uh, were female. Creating that enabling environment requires addressing this, removing the systemic barriers as well as collecting examples of that transformative leadership to motivate people to bring in more leaders. And I know many of you here in the audience actually have been involved in how to do that. So there, the chapter calls for making leaders in both research and, po- and policymaking accountable for gender equality, and that's men and women leaders accountable. There's a chapter on data um, that points out that many, the data on many aspects of, of um, rural women and girls' lives is lacking. We need to account for all of women's work. That's the productive and reproductive. The um, And that data is needed to help improve women's productivity and food security. It, Basically, we need a better understanding in order to address poverty more effectively. Part of the issue is that women's economic and social roles are interdependent and can't be separated. A lot of sex disaggregation of key indicators remains a major challenge, so we have to develop more connections between the data producers and the policymakers on assets. We focus on land and financial capital. Um, On land, the chapter shows that despite a lot of gender-friendly land reform policies in Africa, women's land rights remain insecure, largely for lack of implementation. We find that population pressure, commercialization, agriculture, commodification, and increasing land values, which are the things that are often associated with good agricultural transformation are actually eroding women's land rights. There are positive examples of where um, the government interventions uh, have helped to strengthen women's land rights. This suggests they should be prioritized in those hot spots of la- rising land values and complementing this with legal literacy programs to really improve the the value of this. I'm going to skip the chapter on financial uh, capital because Jemima will be coming in on that and just turn briefly to two of the chapters on shocks. There's one on resilience to climate change that presents a framework to show how the capacities, preferences and needs uh, re- related to resilience differ between men and women and other types of groups. Therefore interventions need <coughs> to ways of recognizing and, dr- and addressing those differences in each particular place so that you can tap into the skills and contributions of women as well as men. That looks at the gender differences in exposure and sensitivity to shocks and stressors, resilience capacities, and the preferences, responses, and well-being outcomes. Once those constraints are identified, you can uh, use that in resilience programming. As an example of resilience programming, social safety nets are growing in importance in Africa, but there's significant evidence gaps. We find strong evidence that these programs can decrease intimate partner violence, increase psychological well-being for women, and uh, economic standing. Um, There's less evidence that the social safety nets empower women, but that's because there are very few studies that have looked at that there's some evidence that they improve women's dietary diversity and limited evidence about uh, effects on women's food security and and nutritional biomarkers so there they non-cash modalities there's a lot more need to unpack this invest in higher quality evidence to demonstrate the impacts of social safety nets on other uh, well-being indicators. I'm going to now turn it over to Agnes to talk about the livelihood strategies. Thank you. Thank you,
3: Ruth. So we've moved the shaded circle down to livelihood strategies and I'm going to cover agricultural productivity, biofortification, value chains, youth employment, and trade. So in the area of agricultural productivity, um, a lot of people in this room, including our discussant, has done a lot of work documenting what these productivity gaps are. And they're important because they represent a cost to society of, which can range from 2.1% to 7.3%. And these gender gaps in, are important because agriculture is important in Sub-Saharan Africa, and women are also very important to the sector. The estimates um, of these gaps suggest that we really need policy focus on this, and the recommendations from the report shows that improving women's access to labor, especially male labor, improving access to high-value production, and to non-labor inputs are very important. And these require changing the norms of what's acceptable for women to do and to produce, access to producer groups, whether all women or mixed, depending on context. Market inputs for input, market access for inputs and outputs, and improving women's control over income. What's interesting is that this focus on agricultural productivity has also helped people recognize women's important contributions to joint household plots. Um, there is a lot more of this in the report. Just read it. I'm going to move on to an area that is very much within IFPRI's. Um, mandate, which is biofortification. Here we look at gender differences in adoption of (laughs) biofortified crops. So gender differences, as we know, affect production, marketing, and consumption decisions for rural households, and who eventually gains nutritional and economic benefits from the crop. So this chapter shows that we need gender-sensitive information dissemination, reaching women through appropriate channels, informal social networks, clinic, and radio. The thing is, if there is a gender of the division of labor by crop, and if men are responsible for cash crops, the danger is that if fortified crops become more profitable or more desirable in the market, men may have greater decision-making power about how the crop is used. And this may affect its ultimate nutritional impact. It's just something to take note of. So we need to pay attention to evolving gender dynamics once these crops are introduced, because gender dynamics uh, by the term itself, are changing. So what might have been a men's or women's crop before could change with the introduction of these new opportunities. Um, one of the areas that where roles, gender roles are constantly changing are, is in the area of value chains. And in this chapter, the authors look at how the focus on value chains has shifted from a narrow focus on women's involvement to addressing the barriers and constraints for different nodes of value chains across sectors and enterprises. And there is a gain to reducing inequality in terms of improving competitiveness and increasing gender equity in economic participation because because this will lead to higher economic growth. So the two key approaches that are being proposed are to focus on value chains where women are heavily engaged and to remove barriers for women's participation and benefits from the high value chains where they're excluded. Examples of what work include working with women's groups and cooperatives, public-private partnerships that have gender at its core, and integrated and bundled support services. So there's been a lot of focus on youth. So often when we talk about gender, people say, what about youth? Well, there are young men and young women too. So in this chapter, the authors look at how to enhance livelihood opportunities for rural African youth. And this means addressing the unique barriers faced by young women and young men. Young rural women, compared to men, transition into adulthood with fewer resources, they have less education and land, and their family responsibilities may limit their school and paid employment opportunities. The thing is, patterns of economic change may be working against African rural youth. Um, At higher levels of structural and rural transformation, Land ownership and current employment are lower, more youth are not in employment, education or training, and these outcomes are even less favorable among young women. The youth bulge in Africa makes attention to this an important issue. And so interventions to improve youth livelihoods need to consider both the productive and reproductive responsibilities of young women and men. It's very often that youth programming will focus on women's reproductive (coughs) responsibilities and men's productive responsibilities, whereas they have both. Now in the area of trade, this case study, which is on Niger, shows that men and women differ in their ability to benefit from trade. So Niger adopted um, a common tariff to strengthen and accelerate regional integration. And what this study finds is that women are concentrated in a limited number of economic activities, although they're more exposed to regional and international trade. However, simulations show that increasing trade openness through the common external tariff would actually widen employment levels and earnings gaps between men and women because women's activities tend to be less responsive to opening up than those of men. So men are the ones who benefit from trade openness. And why is this so? It's because there are lots of underlying gender disparities in the economy. So these gender disparities lead to a misallocation of resources in the economy and a loss in economic opportunity for Niger. Um, The estimates here show that their GDP is lower by 17% because of gender inequality. So we see all these gaps actually have economic costs all throughout. When we now turn in the conceptual framework to full incomes, we recognize that earning income but also controlling that income is very important. So even though women entrepreneurs own one-third of businesses in Africa, they are concentrated in the low-return and informal sector. And their control of agricultural income is far below their contribution because of smaller sl- plot size, limited markets, and unpaid labor. And so this has implications for all sorts of economic and non-economic outcomes. Women are more likely to control income from traditional food crops, small livestock, small revenue streams, local markets, and they have lower control of income from high revenue commodities. So promising interventions would address household and community relations and gender norms, improve value chain contracts with women, commercial agriculture hiring women, and new payment methods enhancing women's control. Finally, this all leads to well-being. And we look at two well-being outcomes one is the role of one is nutrition and the role of men and the other one is women's empowerment so this case study um focuses on malawi and it shows that nutrition policies can improve gender equality and malnutrition outcomes simultaneously it's often forgotten that men have an important supportive role to play in maternal and child nutrition the baby did not appear out of the blue. It was it was not a clone. The baby most babies are not clones. And and men's role in nutrition can foster cooperation between men and women. But we but programming around nutrition often focuses on women without involving men. Now, as custodians of culture, traditional leaders can positively influence gender equality and nutrition outcomes. And therefore policymakers need to work with gender experts to strengthen the integration of gender across all levels of policy. Um, the chapter on empowerment, the case study on empowerment, it uses the Women's Empowerment in Agriculture Index in the seven countries in Africa for which we have data. And the main sources of this empowerment are access to and decisions on credit, control over the use of income, and excessive workload, which is very important in Africa where women are very involved in production. And the top sources of this empowerment point to the important role of women's agriculture producers and the inter-household tensions regarding the control of income to which women contribute as income earners. (coughs) So finally, what do we conclude from this report? One is that the gender gaps in assets, livelihood strategies, and control of income impose costs on individuals, households, communities, and nations. And the conceptual framework that we presented Shows the connections among these elements for interventions. It reinforces the effect of changes in social norms and women's control over land and resources, to financial inclusion, to increasing the value of women's agriculture production, consumption, investment patterns, and women's empowerment. Women's assets contribute to resilience, insurance, and social protection affect livelihood strategies. And structural transformation of the economy could have a negative effect on women's land rights and young women's employment if we don't pay attention. One thing we must emphasize is that gender is not the same as women. Gender means women and men, and others. And so we need to recognize jointness, engage men to change social norms, to improve outcomes for all. Finally, I think a main message of this report is that structures have to change to achieve gender equality. We don't need to fix women, we need to build systems that work for them. Thank you very much and I hope you read the report.
0: Thank you very much, Ruth and Agnes. is amazing, in about 20 minutes, they gave us a tour de force, uh, tour de table of a very um, uh, number of chapters in this report. There are two of the editors. Our third speaker is the third editor of the report, and she is Jemima Njuki. Jemima could not be here with us in person, and she sent us a video message. We'll play an excerpt of that message here. And, uh, and then we'll have the full video up on our website for those of you who want to afterwards listen to it all. Jemima is also very well known to all of us. She's Senior Program Officer at the International Development Research Center, IDRC, based in Nairobi. Let's look forward to her video message.
4: Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for having me. This is uh, Jemai Manjuki from IDLC. I will be presenting today the chapter on gender transformative financial inclusion. And really what we tried to do uh, with this chapter is to go beyond access to finance um, for women, to making sure that financial inclusion is gender transformative and what that takes. The key message and the key to this gender transformative impact uh, from financial inclusion is how we go beyond thinking about women and training women and organizing women and making them attractive to financial inclusions to actually looking at their financial services, organizations and institutions and how transformative they are and to the extent to which they're actually looking at the needs. Um, and priorities of women when they design, when they market, and when they deliver financial inclusion uh, financial inclusion services. I would like to just start by um, defining what financial inclusion. Is and the way we define financial inclusion in this chapter, and the way it has been defined, is when everyone has access to and use of affordable financial products and services that actually meet their needs, and these services could be savings, credit, insurance, transactions, or any combination of, of these services. But for women, even more importantly, is that they do have the resources, the income. Come mm. on um, to engage in these services, and we know women's financial um, inclusion is um, is is important for agriculture and for small and medium enterprises, but for women. Um, they face limitations, either due to constraints of time, or with their legal rights, their human capacity, they have security concerns, there is lack of money, and of course the fact that financial institutions do not always design, market and deliver financial services in ways that always work for, um, for women. I don't need to belabor the point of why financial uh, inclusion is so critical for for women as Sarah, who is in this Session has written before. Uh, meaningful financial inclusion can reduce gender um, in in inequality. We have seen from evidence that women with access to bank accounts or other saving mechanisms have more control over their their earnings, and sometimes it even extends to issues beyond how they um, invest their money to actually having more choice about how they use their 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 time. So one of the key challenges um, that we face is that although the ownership of both formal accounts and mobile accounts is increasing, there has been a persistent uh, 7% uh, uh, gender gap in account ownership. So uh, with the 2018 FINDEX data what we find is that 72% of men have an account while 65% of women have an account. So that is global data irrespective of where these women are, whether they're in employment, whether they're in entrepreneurship, whether they're smallholder firmers, traders, processors, etc. Now the the Bigger gap arises when you then disaggregate um, these women. Now, the sixty-five percent um, account ownership that I talked about is overall for women. Now, if you look at women smallholder farmers, that number is much, much lower—six to nineteen percent across a number of countries um, that that uh, we. Commissioned some some research, some research on. Um, if you see a country like Kenya, less than twenty percent of smallholder women farmers have um, have a bank account. Other countries um, below ten percent. If you look at Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda. Um, Zambia, all lower than 10% of women smallholder farmers that have a bank account. Entrepreneurs faring much better, uh, but still um, around the 30%, the 30% uh, number in terms of access to, to bank accounts for women, for women entrepreneurs. So we commissioned some studies last year to really look at what are some of the gender related constraints to to financing. And because of this objective of making gender uh, of making financial inclusion more gender transformative, we looked at both the demand side and the supply. Um, and the supply side. So basically, looking at the constraints that women themselves themselves face because of the of their situations and and some of the gender barriers they face, but also on the supply side, what then happens when they go to a financial service um, service provider and what's happening there? So on the demand side, we can see it's some of the the, the usual constraints that that we know: limited time and mobility because of women's care work um, uh, lack of assets to use as collateral in some countries no formal identification for some of the fintech solutions lower access to cell phones limited financial and legal literacy Etc. But when you also look at the supply side, we see a lot of inappropriate product and service offerings, and sometimes because of uh, it could be because of the nature of women's. Um, businesses or for smallholder farmers, the nature of the crops that the growing, that the products and services provided do not actually meet um, their needs. Sometimes it's gender-blind marketing, you know, uh, financial uh, service providers, be they banks or microfinance institutions, targeting men in households for marketing, um, either loan products, insurance product. Sometimes it's in appropriate distribution channels that are not taking into account where women um, where women are. We also, however, did look at what are some of the financial sector innovations that are focused on on women. Some of them are innovations that, um, that we already that we already know like microfinance institutions that target women across countries. We knew even in Africa, several of those village savings and loans associations such as those that have been formed um, through through NGOs. But we did focus quite a bit on fintech solutions because we saw fintech solutions as offering a huge opportunity to close the gender gap in financial inclusion, but also having the potential to, if, if not done well, to actually exacerbate the gender Gap. Because if you think about the gender gap in access to mobile um, phones, for example, in 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 Africa, if you then overlay the the gap in financial inclusion, you can actually make that la- that gap larger. And yet, if done well, they could also be a vehicle for uh, reducing reducing the gender disparities. So we looked at three different kinds of fintech solutions. These are innovations that transform the whole market. So they're not gender targeted and they commonly called the lift all boats um, innovations. They are in the market and there's an expectation that everyone benefits um, from them. Then there's the innovations that specifically target women, that look at what women's needs and constraints are, and actually target women as 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 a as a client group. Then there's a third. Um, group of fintech solutions and innovations that are actually digitizing institutions and services that serve that serve women first is the fintech innovations that benefit the market in general and these will be things like mobile money products like in Kenya we have the the, the M-Pesa and and study there have been studies that show that women are less likely to spend money they save in M-Pesa Uh, than keeping it at home, so they have more control over the money if it is actually on their mobile phones. The second category of the gender targeted fintech solutions, what we found is there were very few fintech solutions targeted to women. We did not find any, especially in the agriculture sector or the small and medium enterprise um, sector. In the solutions for institutions serving um, women, um, we found a lot of cloud-based, for example, banking systems for microfinance institutions that are too small to develop um, their own. Um, Some very women-targeted solutions in this uh, space were the digitization of savings groups. What the biggest challenge for a lot of these innovations Um, is that they're being introduced in a business and social context that still has significant gender bias. The whole point of this is to make financial inclusion for women more gender transformative and not just focus on the women themselves and what women should do and what men should do, but how financial institutions themselves can um, can be more uh, transformative can better meet the needs of men and of especially of women and how those financial services can have a transformative impact on on women. So we define gender transformative financial inclusion as a way of doing financial inclusion that's directed towards creating gender equal financial systems that enable all entrepreneurs, regardless of gender, to overcome both their supply and demand-sized constraints and improve their livelihoods on equal terms. So the idea is this is much more political than mainstreaming approaches. It goes beyond pinking, what I would call pinking, of already existing uh, products or services to say, oh, we have a counter there for women, but the services being provided there, the products being provided there are still not developed with women. Um, with, with women in mind. So these are the dimensions of a gender transformative financial inclusion. And, and when you look at this and look at action that has to happen at the individual level between men and women, at the business level, how these financial institutions actually conduct their businesses, at the relational uh, level whether this is the dynamics between the financial institution and people whether it is between um in the home and the, and and the market etc at the at the institutional level and and the rules of the game the norms the rules the laws and the regulations and structures that that are in place that actually uh benefit um that need to to change for financial inclusion to be transformative and the simpler part of this is the fact that there is work that needs to happen at the market level to make those services transformative at the home level but also at the at the community level, so these are the components of a gender transformative financial inclusion system, uh, and there's a very nice diagram about of this in the in the in the chapter okay. that. There is a gender analysis that is done of the entrepreneurial ecosystem itself, that there is capacity building on gender, both on the supply and demand side, that diverse strategies and interventions are done that target multiple levels. And because of these multiple levels, it means financial institutions have to then have some innovative partnerships and multi-stakeholder commitments if that change is actually to happen at that individual business relational and um and structural and structural level and when all that comes together what you then see as outcomes is women's empowerment but also strengthened relationships and negotiation dynamics the institutions themselves become more enabling and become more um more Equitable. What we're saying is gender transformative financial inclusion is not just focusing on, on women and making women bankable, which is what has been the tradition before, but it is actually making financial systems womenable. It is making financial systems work. Um, for women and lead to transformative change in their lives by changing their rules and practices, regulatory systems and social norms, but also not forgetting to change women's skills, knowledge and resources and, and changing those relationships in the household, in the market, in the community that actually enable women to, to thrive. So that's all um, I had for you. Um, Thank you very much, and I will be available later on Skype for the Q&A.
0: So we've heard from three editors of the report, and now we have a chance to hear from three different discussants or commentators. Our first discussant is Sarah Gamage. She is senior. She is a director of gender. Economic Empowerment and Livelihoods at the International Center for Research on Women, ICRW, right here in Washington. Sarah, welcome.
5: Well, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure reading this report, so I really appreciate the opportunity to say a few words very synthetically and very quickly, because I think we're going to move on to the discussion, which should be very rich, given all of the people that we have in this room. So I just want to begin by saying it's an excellent report. It is beautifully written. It covers an incredible range of gender equality issues with real policy traction and real meaningful programmatic relevance. So read it, cite it, it is wonderful. My particular fondness for it is really because I have a sort of deep fondness for the WEA and all of the things that the WEA have achieved and the utility of the framework, and I'm glad to hear that it's going to go on to be even bigger and better soon, so that's wonderful. Because for me, the way it really links aspects and domains of empowerment and provides some deep analytics of each of these domains, and that's what this chapter does in this particular tour de force of gender equality in Africa. I also particularly like this book because it anchors the analysis of these commitments to advance the SDGs, but also in the Malabo Declaration. So I think it really reminds us of rights and policy commitments and how, with good evidence, we can actually implement meaningful programs and policies that can make a difference. So it resonated with me deeply. But as I read it, I just ended up with a sort of avalanche of oh, where else do we need more exploration and sort of more depth. And so just going back to the way and taking it as a starting point and thinking about what that chapter identified through its analysis, um, I think we've got some real opportunities to sort of deepen our analysis of power in many contexts, both in the household but also in the market. So the WEA chapter also identified that reducing time use and time burdens was one of the key levers that can potentially improve outcomes for women in the household, and in the market, and in their sort of production activities. I felt that we could really deepen our analysis of the infrastructural investments that secure that, both in terms of reducing time burdens, but increasing the efficiency of productive tasks and reproductive tasks. And I really want to stress that, the efficiency of those tasks, because I think a lot of times we haven't been measuring it well, but we actually now have the data that we need to think about what sort of improvements in efficiency in the reproductive sphere and the productive sphere could look like and their impacts on welfare and well-being. I also think, and I'm very glad that the, sort of there was a lot of attention to changing social norms and recognizing that social norms are squishy and malleable and not immutable and that we really can change them both in terms of interventions but in terms of policy. I would like to have had more reflection on what redistributes time use between men and women, but also how you socialise care and social reproduction through the market, the household, and the state. So I did a very simplistic analysis, and please forgive the sort of uh, pedestrian nature of this, but. In the 324 pages, childcare was only mentioned 11 times, and unpaid work was also only mentioned 11 times, and the word drudgery only once. And I think we could really sort of surface that a little bit more. Going back to the analysis of power, both in the household and the market, intra-household bargaining and power dynamics were disproportionately referenced in terms of supporting household dialogues, and not in terms of other sort of external initiatives that can potentially rebalance power, particularly in the market. And I'm thinking here about policy, employment legislation, and building and strengthening labor market institutions. So for me, that was under-analyzed, and again, quick word counts, very pedestrian, but they reveal some key levers in institutions that can rebalance power. We've got no reference to minimum wages, only two references to unions, one reference to collective bargaining, four references to collectives, 17 to associations, but they're mostly savings associations and not producer and farmer associations. 19 references to cooperation, but that's mostly household dialogues and not necessarily how you build cooperative groups, associations that can begin to negotiate input prices, output prices, and sort of level the playing field in markets. Social protection was mentioned 33 times. But much of that is actually in the bibliography. Pensions one time, and that was a widow's pension. (laughs) Formalization seven times, and largely only for land rights. And monopoly and monopsony zero times. And I think this is particularly important when we're thinking about power in markets. If you have a single buyer, sets the price. This is really important in contract farming and particularly important for smallholders. So understanding those dynamics, deconstructing them, thinking about competition policy and thinking about what ways you aggregate people to rebalance power and negotiate markets is very important. Standing back from this, employment was mentioned 208 times and markets 110 times. So clearly jobs and transactions are important for gender equality. Interestingly, taxes and subsidies were only mentioned twice. Wage and price floors, not at all. Marketing boards and parastatals, not at all. Important institutions that can potentially level some of those playing fields, particularly for women. I was surprised at this because I actually think imperfect competition and power imbalances in markets are a key component of gender inequality. And it's really important for women as workers, producers, input purchasers, sellers, and consumers. So just to underscore the importance of this, the analysis of social safety nets was fantastic. um, And the semi-systematic reviews of the impacts of social protection underscored that social protection can crowd in certain very positive behaviors, savings, credit, entrepreneurship, productivity, life satisfaction, psychological well-being, reduced violence, improved nutrition, and education. So I think we need a greater emphasis on social protection as a mechanism particularly for informal workers informal laborers i want to reiterate it's a superb piece of work and i really enjoyed reading it and i want to read more of it and i am looking for the next iteration where we can have more of a focus on power and markets thank you very much
0: Sarah, thank you so much for that very careful uh, review. Usman, I think you're looking at volume two uh, coming up. And I'm sure the editors have taken note of some of nope. the missing words and so forth. Thank you very much. Our second discussant is Michael O'Sullivan. Michael is senior economist at the World Bank Group
6: all right thank you very much um, very excited to be here uh to talk about this great report i will be taking a slightly different tack from from sarah's uh remarks in that i'll be sort of giving some high-level thoughts on this great report and then talking about how we at the africa gender innovation lab and the world bank more broadly are trying to contribute to this agenda so um i think you know the points that i would like to make about the report really again echo the the remarks that, that sarah gave initially and that this is a great, not just synthesis of the available sort of frontier evidence, but it also adds a lot more rich knowledge and data to our understanding. Um, it, it, it was, I mean, incredible. I mean, I encourage you all to read this, uh, this report because it, I was learning a lot of things and sort of making notes on the margins as, as I was uh, reading. Um, and I also really appreciate the policy, sort of the, the, the primacy of place given to policy here. I mean, the, the linking to the Malibu Declaration and the fact that, you know, this is a report that will be useful not just for researchers but also for, for the policy and program crowd. Um, and of course, you know, the, the GAP framework uh, and helping us think through things like complementarities and, 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 and the like that I think are, are really useful uh, going forward. So. Um, we as a team, what is this World Bank Gender Innovation Lab, um, some of you might be familiar with the work and we've been working with colleagues here at FP for a number of years. We're trying to figure out what works and what does not to promote uh, gender equality in Sub-Saharan Africa and then use that to shape policy. So we do that through you know, identifying constraints, uh, synthesis reports, rigorous impact evaluations and the like. Um, but we're also trying to sort of feed into the World Bank Group's gender strategy, primarily in the re- realms of economic opportunities and, and voice and agency. Um, so our evidence, we're really trying to get this used by World Bank operations and, and others. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the work that we're doing that tries to address uh, kind of the key themes that are, are coming up again and again in, the, in this report. Of course, first being around social norms. Um, so we're actually partnering with uh, the, a World Bank regional program, the Sahel Women's Empowerment and Demographic Dividend Project, in a number of countries um, to uh, identify ways to not just improve and, and strengthen uh, the livelihoods of, of young adolescent women, but also change social norms that might that might um, serve as barriers. So we're partnering with IRC um, and the government of Cote d'Ivoire uh, on a on an intervention that actually um, tries to engage men and boys. So it's in. In a randomized control trial setup, we're going to be testing um, the effects of bringing religious and community leaders into the discussion to, to break down some of those barriers. They're also setting up these future husband schools that are going to be parallel uh, safe spaces for boys to talk about not only sexual and reproductive health issues, but also um, trying to break down and dismantle some of these gender norms and stereotypes. So stay tuned for um, the results coming out next year on this study. Um, and then on land, our team has been working for a number of years with a number of projects including outside of the World Bank to identify ways to improve women's access to and control over land resources. So, for example, in, in Uganda, we've been working with the government on, on a randomized control trial to test to different packages, different um, instruments to promote joint land titling. Um, and so, in this setting, we found that providing information in the, short, in the form of a short educational video clip can boost uh, joint land titling by about 25 percent relative to a benchmark uh, sort of gender-blind intervention, if you will, and that by imposing conditions and sort of making this a conditional subsidy on the condition that both spouses appear on the document, you can increase uh, a, a jointness by about 50 percent without diminishing overall demand for titles, which suggests that there is. Appetite and willingness, of course, context is, is everything, and this is a part of Uganda where women tend to have stronger property rights, but I think that this, this holds promise for other types of interventions. So addressing the financial inclusion gap, um, this is an area where we've grappled with for years. Um, we've actually made some headway in Ethiopia working with the uh, Ethiopia Weta Project and the Entrepreneurial Finance Lab, where we're testing psychometric screening. To try to help uh, women overcome collateral constraints, so this is a short uh, tablet-based uh, set of questions, quizzes, and games, uh, wherein you can then elicit from from the respondent uh, a score that determines the credit eligibility of that individual based on ability and willingness to repay the loan. And it, from the pilot uh, exercise, we've really had re- great success. We've had ninety-nine percent repayment uh, based on the, on the on the individuals who actually met uh, the, the threshold criteria. And so we're going to be taking these results and, and actually testing them with an RCT as well. And so finally, I want to highlight some, some great work we've been doing with Kate Ambler here at IFPRI as well as Kelly Jones at American University um, to try to look for ways to bring more women into agricultural value chains. In this context, we're talking about sugarcane farming um, in eastern Uganda, where men tend to control uh, not just mostly production, but primarily the market-facing activities and, and the, the receipt of the, of the profits from, the, from those activities. So we tested in this RCT setup um, a workshop intervention that tries to promote dialogue, cooperation within the household, Uh, as well as a market-based intervention that encourages husbands to transfer or register a new block of sugar cane in the name of the wife. Um, So some initial findings that are pretty exciting in terms of take up, first off, we have very high levels of take up, relatively high, much higher than we expected, around 70% of of husbands were willing to transfer a, a cane block to his wife and similar levels of take up for the workshop intervention. Second, we find that it's actually the husband's characteristics that seem to really matter in terms of the predicting take-up of this intervention, which suggests that these types of interventions that are targeting women and women's empowerment should also be thinking about addressing the the husband as the barrier to to their empowerment. And thirdly, we're finding that um, the the workshop itself has also boosted the level of take up uh, for the contract intervention by about 10%. So we're excited to to sort of come out with the um, impact results very soon, so stay tuned for that. Thanks very much.
0: Michael, thank you very much for that. I'm really hoping that this uh report will contribute to the bank's gender strategy. Super. Our third and last discussant is Meredith Sue. Meredith is division chief at at the Bureau for Food Security at the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, right here in town. Meredith, we look forward to your remarks.
7: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I think all of our three panel remarks are a little bit different, but we all have the same message you need to read this report. <laughs> <You> know, <so laughs> I think you've probably heard that by now, but it is an excellent report and I think really, as we see like with what Michael was presenting, there's lots of new things going on and this it really encapsulates it by whatever topic you wanna to look at, except for the ones that Sarah raised, yes. that you know, <laughs> you know, there's gender and, and then the latest evidence in the data, which is really great. Um, I'd also like to thank IFPRI for organizing this event today. I'm in also the um, RESACS program and for choosing this topic for this year. I think it's very very timely and very important. Um, The theme really aligns well with what USAID is doing and indeed the whole U.S. government on women's empowerment and gender equality. And it builds on two important commitments that the U.S. government made this year. The first was in January, Congress passed and the President signed the Women's Entrepreneurship and Economic Empowerment Act. The WEEE Act aims to expand gender equality and women's entrepreneurship in developing countries, including improving access to finance, ownership of assets, and allocation of resources. This was followed in February with the establishment of the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative, the WGDP. It was the first whole of government effort of the U.S. government to advance global women's empowerment. It's seeking to reach 50 million women in developing countries um, by 2025 through U.S. government activities, private-public partnerships, and a new innovative fund. The WGDP focuses on three pillars, which are advancing workforce development for women to secure jobs, promoting women's entrepreneurship and access to capital, and removing legal, regulatory, and cultural barriers that constrain women from being able to fully and freely participate in the economy. Of course, this builds on our long-term commitment to gender equality and female empowerment, which are absolutely essential for meeting CADEP's commitments, the aspirations of all Africans, and furthering each country's journey to self-reliance. In Feed the Future, which is 10 years old now, we've emphasized gender since the beginning and with our partners have achieved some important results, including 2.6 million more women with access to credit, over $630 million in loans unlocked for women and their businesses, and 3.3 million more women with more reasonable workloads. The WIA has already been mentioned, which has been a big part of our program also. But we're not going to be able to reach all of these transformative goals that we all share if we don't have the data to measure um, our progress and evidence to promote it, which is really provided very well in this report. I had the very good fortune to participate in the RESAC's annual meeting in Lomé this past November where the authors presented the chapters followed by in-depth discussion over the course of two days. Um, I, I had a few highlights that I wrote down to share with you and I can see I was a very good student because they follow very closely with <laughs> the messages that were here, so I won't take too long. You know, I just noticed following with Jemima um, that this, this digital, digital divide is real and must be addressed. Um, in the, ten, the chapter on, the, on land tenure in Africa, um, the recommendation is important um, to really focus on these areas with the high and increasing land values. And also the message that came out in several different ways about the transformation and the need to fix the systems instead of trying to fix women. And I heard that over and over and we heard it again today. And I think that really gives us things to think about. What does that mean and how do we start to program for that? Um, The chapter on the women's control over income talks about the need for women to be remunerated for their their labor. And three weeks ago USAID held our worldwide gender conference which brought our gender advisors from our missions around the world together. And one of our senior leaders at that conference said women's time is an undervalued commodity. So it's really highlighting that for everyone in the agency of how are we addressing this. Making point that we need to ensure that. What we're programming is helping to decrease and not increase the time women spend in unpaid activities such as waiting in line for a service. I think that could be applied to these financial services. We're talking about health services and others. And also pointing out we also need to think about norms and how they're changing. And it's not just about freeing up more of women's time so they can do all of the care and nutrition work in the household, but that men have that shared responsibility. So again, I'd like to congratulate um, all of the authors for this and the hard work, and for everyone who brought this together. It's so full of good data and analysis that I'd like to encourage you all to make a New Year's resolution to (laughs) (laughs) set aside 15 to 20 minutes each week and read one of these chapters. I'm not sure how many weeks that will take, but I, I can assure you that it will educate you and improve the work that you do. Thank you.
0: Let me take a first round from here in the room, and I ask our online participants please be ready, uh, and we'll take you in the second round. Uh, as usual, give uh, raise your hand, give us a sign that you wish to speak, and our colleagues with mics will come around. Please give us your name and uh, institution. Okay,
8: uh, Brian Bruns, a consulting sociologist, uh, to what the last speaker mentioned and earlier about land tenure and access to land. So whether Ruth and others might say a bit more about what kind of interventions seem to be feasible and promising, thank you.
0: Thank you very much, nice and sweet. Panelists, please collect these various comments and then I'll come back to you. Anyone else in the room who is brave and uh, wishes to make a comment? And I notice we also have several of the authors here with us today from the chapters. So they should also feel welcome to jump in make comments or address questions that come up that are of relevance to their chapter. I am stunned. How did we as women manage to, uh, (laughs) okay. Uh, Let me take a hand at the back with Brian, then Julie and Rob.
9: Brian Greenberg, independent consultant. Really enjoyed the presentations and the discussion. Um, What struck me was the comprehensive disadvantages that women and girls face across all domains of life. We call those to our attention in very focused ways, but you all picked up the enormous spectrum of those. And 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 just if you'll bear with me for a moment, that ranged from things like access to land, and literacy, value chains, mobility, security, control of income, access to finance and credit, education, and so forth and on and on. And my question is really, in moving from commitments to action, a lot of times social norm change was referenced as an important pathway and seems like a common denominator. Sort of suggesting that we got norm change approaches figured out uh, and that if we would just apply norm change, that a lot of this, the constraints around this would sharply diminish. And I'm, so I'm wondering, um, are there cross-cutting approaches to norm change that you've seen and might recommend so that you wouldn't have necessarily people in land approaches or access to water and health all thinking independently about behavior ch- macro level behavior cross-cutting behavior and norm changes that could create synergies in all these areas, but that a lot we don't have the expertise for in a lot of these specific sectoral areas. So it, are there macro approaches to norm change, that <laughs> in broader communications and media?
0: Brian, thank you very much. I see our panelist nodding. Let me go next to Julie. And hi, Julie Kurtz if
7: Uh Thank you so much for this. Uh, I was wondering, picking up on, on Sarah's comments about monopsony and monopoly, and wondering, even if it wasn't directly addressed, if the, the authors or even Sarah could say more about how that cons- kind of consolidation impacts women.
0: Thank you, Julie. And then Rob, you're next.
8: Rafos, if pre, first, it's great to see so much um, um, like minded views on the importance of closing the gender gap and uh, a lot of deepening of the analysis with the from the past-breaking report of FEO in 2011. So now we're almost a decade further. So one wonders if we know all of this and all the economic benefits. So why is the gap not closing at a more accelerated pace if we see can see all these benefits or are we just talking to each other and we're not convincing uh, the policy makers enough uh, of these benefits?
0: Rob, thank you very much. I'd like to come back to the panel at this point and then I'll come back into a second round and as we do that I would also like to pose a question partly based on Rob's point which is looking forward and you mentioned digital divide but the power of digital um, information today, is that uh, something that we're exploring more in Africa, including the uh, including through education? Mm-hmm. Panelists, let me ask you, feel free to pick up on the comments you wish to. Let me begin with the two editors here, and then I'll come to Jemima next, and then to the panelists. Agnes or Ruth? Let
2: me start with Brian's comment. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, in the chapter, it's... Um Hosanna compares um, four countries, Ethiopia, Nigeria, um, Mozambique, and Malawi. And one of the interesting contrasts is between Mozambique and Ethiopia, where in Ethiopia, the higher proportion of land registered is associated with more secure rights for women in Mozambique, it's with less secure rights for women. What's the difference? Ethiopia was very deliberate about it. They did things like putting the, the wife's, not just her name on the title, but her picture along with the man's. And, and then it was also accompanied with legal literacy campaigns so that communities, men and women, know about it and also we find that the higher the level of legal literacy the more secure women's land rights are so that I think this gets back to an overall point that there are things that work for um, increasing gender equality they don't happen by accident and if other countries have rolled out dual registration but they didn't teach the registrars why that was important and in the next round they said there's a mistake here there's two lines we can make this form more efficient by dropping this second line because nobody's filling it out you know there so it's it's that point about being deliberate Um, and then that uh, brings us to um, Brian Greenberg's question about norm change, there are really promising results from processes, whether they're called household methodologies or community conversations. Just last week, Agnes and I were um, in Ethiopia for a workshop of projects um, that are working using the Project Level Women's Empowerment and Ag Index. and. Um, Bobby Gray of Grameen Foundation encapsulated it. She said, these community conversations are a game changer. We've been doing financial, you know savings and credit groups for a long time. This made the difference. So those they they, to, they take an investment, but they are something that has been tested and a really, and I think Agnes can come in with more evidence on this, it is promising, and are we going to make that investment? But there's a higher level of normative change too that we even saw in the the workshop in Lome, which is policymakers own norms. And I've been asked by one policymaker, you know, why do you care about women's land rights? I take care of my women. Fortunately. You know, as I started to answer, that's great that you do, but there are plenty of other instances. There were three other women parliamentarians, and they just stepped in and sort of wiped the floor with him on chapter and verse of why it was important that women have their own property rights. Which brings me to the point about the interconnectedness of different things. So having more women in leadership to make these policy changes is important having norms that create the acceptability of that it so it it is all interconnected and I'm hoping that Sarah is going to come in with a lot of examples of how to make those bigger structural changes
3: thank you Ruth Um, I wanted also to come back to your point about the cross-cutting approaches to normative change and um, Ruth had mentioned community conversations the other thing that's also very important is in involving men because gender norms are not going to change just by talking with women or working with women. And I th- we have seen in the projects that we're working with in the GAP2 Gender Agriculture and Access Projects phase two project, project that um, those projects which had a deliberate effort to work with men also experienced more gender equitable changes in gender norms, in men's willingness to take up work that would relieve women's time burden. Um, So there is really no way to have a gender transformative change by working with women alone. You have to involve men. The other thing that is important is the supportive environment in terms of mass media, um, all forms of mass media, and also what policymakers are going to be willing to commit to. Um, One thing, though, that's, I think, speaks to the point that Ruth mentioned about the policymakers as you know, I, I, I take care of my women, is the idea that gender relations are personal, but they're also societal. And I think both mirror each other. You, um, for a normative change to happen, it really has to happen at a level higher than the household. Um, there was one question about why is the gap not closing at an accelerated pace. I think it comes to the interaction between two things, limited resources and stickiness of norms. So poverty and patriarchy this is something that Ruth and I have been talking about a lot. Both of them can be disempowering. Um, poverty can be disempowering for women and for men. Patriarchy is disempowering for women. It could also disempower men if they don't doesn't give men ability to move into different roles or to take on new responsibilities, like more caregiving responsibilities. So I think we have to address both to really close the gap.
0: Let me turn now to Jemima. She is with us uh, from Nairobi. Jemima, welcome. Hi, Jemima. We're excited that you're joining us. Would you like to make any remarks?
10: Um, yeah, I, I, I do want to make a few.
0: Comments on the, on the questions.
4: Um, the first one on the social, uh, the social norm change and whether there are um, macro approaches that can be used that actually cut across some of the issues that we discussed in the, um, in the report. And I think I'll say that the the fundamental um, issue here is actually how um, society perceives women and girls and if we can actually change that, then we start seeing change across, um, across sectors, but how does that actually happen? So in the health sector, for example, we've seen a lot of use of behavior change, um, communication, whether it is in dealing with issues around um, HIV, AIDS, or whether it's reproductive health. But we haven't seen a lot of that applied across scale in the the agriculture sector. So there's also a lot that within the sector we can and are learning from, um, from other sectors. The second thing is actually how we integrate some of the household methodologies that Ruth and Agnes are talking about, the community dialogues, the household dialogues, the policy dialogues. How do we start integrating that in the key approaches that we're using in the sector? How do they become part of how we develop value chains? How do they become part of um national extension systems. We still have national
10: extension systems that that look at gender as something that's gonna be dealt with by community development officers and not part of a constitutional approach. And some of that is what we're trying to do. And I think that the the case study from dash talk about how do you include household (laughs) Community dialogues around gender that engage more men that engage boys that engage traditional leaders as part of um, African extension services. Um, the second comment I wanted to make is on why um, uh, the gap is not closing. It's a more accelerating pace, than and and yet the research. I think there has never been greater awareness of the importance of gender equality as as there is um, right now. And part of it is that lack of intentionality. There's a lot of good intentions of application of policies with the belief that those policies are going to have an impact on um, a positive impact on, on gender. Um, on gender equality and sometimes that is not the
4: case and it's because we're not connecting dots and we're not
10: connecting levels so i'll give you an example of land policy in kenya it is very clear now that boys and girls have equal rights to inherit land and yet in the last 10 years only about one percent of the land has been registered um, to, to, to women why because even as policy changes, perceptions, local perceptions, cultural perceptions about who should own land or not are not changing alongside that. So there's a lot of good intentions that are not necessarily leading to impact because of that connectedness between a lot of this jointness um, around, uh, around intervention um we see technology having a role to play but as I said in, in the in the bigger um, in the longer video that because we already have a gender gap in technology that if we are also not intentional there, although we look possibly positively to technology
4: closing gender, the gender gap, it could actually widen it so if you look at if you decide to do land registration through mobile phone, or whatever, just
10: as an example, and there is already an existing gap in um, mobile phone ownership between men and women, and you have a gap in land ownership between men and you could actually multiply that gap if you not more, um, if you're not more intentional. And the last thing I want to say, I think if, uh, I have repeated this so much, that we keep trying to fix women, we keep trying to train them, <laughs> but large-scale change is going to come. If we fix financial institution services, we get access to credit um, for, for women. If we change how they act, um behave, how they structure their products, who do they develop those products how they sell them how they market them what are their repayment systems how aligned are those repayment systems to where women are in the in the entrepreneurial um, ecosystem if we can change that we start doing large
0: jemima thank you so much for those powerful remarks especially the last set of remarks Panelists, I'm going to be a very cruel person because I would like us to do a second round may I ask you to make brief interventions at this time and then I'll take you first in the next round. Let's begin with Sarah. Okay,
5: so I'm going to go straight to monopoly and monopsony um, and just sort of list some levers that I think are worthwhile exploring and exploring in greater depth to see are these institutions actually working for women workers, women farmers, and women in households. So I think competition policy is fundamental. I think we do need to look at imperfect competition and how it affects price setting and price taking behavior. I think collectives are important. I think aggregation of collectives. So if you look at informalization along key value chains, if you don't have aggregation, you then are sort of stuck being price takers and selling at those prices. So I think that those are important institutions to think about, procurement initiatives as well, and I think we've got some fantastic examples from Kenya as well, where sort of deliberate intent to expand at least government procurement initiatives to include particular you know, women's collectives and women's enterprises has leveled the playing field for them. Um, and finally, for workers, I think collective bargaining agreements are actually quite helpful. We've been doing some work looking at unions and unionization and collective bargaining in key value chains. One of them, a wine value chain in <coughs> Morocco. And it was clear that they are able to achieve some significant changes in the terms and conditions of employment, but that actually, they were sort of win-win for many of the domains that have adopted them because they are actually experiencing significant efficiency wage outcomes and uh, better matching in their hiring and their training. So just to pass that on.
0: Thank you, Sarah. Michael, would you like to make any comments?
6: Sure, just um, a quick, I think this is on, Yes, no, no, that's, that's again, now it's green, okay. Um, so, in reference to the land question, I want to make a plug for our women business and law colleagues just to reiterate the importance of getting the legal framework work in place. It's sort of a necessary but, of course, not sufficient condition. Um, so, you know, evidence from Rwanda, for example, has shown that, you know, getting the legal framework right but also the implementation of that of that of the legal change and then getting down to the implementation details that I think that Ruth and, and Jemima were, were hitting at is really important. And we're seeing in the Uganda setting even... Literally, you know, just even the way that you carry out the intervention can matter. We, we experimentally varied whether we had just the husband present for the interview or the husband and wife. And it turns out by having her present for that interview, you have a much higher, a substantially higher level of joint titling from just the presence of that spouse. So that's a point that I wanted to sort of make clear. The devil is in the details. On the on the norms change piece, I also I think one promising area that we're trying to explore across all of our work is to find, explore the wedge between your private beliefs and the sort of second order beliefs, the, the things that you think other people perceive, right? So, You know, the work in Saudi Arabia around women's labor force participation, just literally explaining to men, you know, updating their priors about what other men think actually led women in their household to be more likely to seek employment. So those kinds of things, I think, are really promising to test in in different domains.
7: Thank you. Um, I wanted to first address a little bit the question around social norms and building on what Agnes said in terms of poverty being disempowering, and then pulling out of the chapter on social protection. She went through it pretty quickly, but there was a study that showed that cash transfers decreased gender-based violence. And at the gender conference I mentioned, there was um, a presentation by another researcher who showed 17 or 19 studies on cash transfers the majority, great majority of them showed a decrease in gender-based violence when women were receiving cash transfers. It was really interesting because the hypothesis was the opposite. And so, I don't think we really understand the why of that, but it's, I think, a very important thing to understand because cash transfers can be reaching many more people and having a much greater impact on those reductions in gender-based violence. And then very quickly on monopoly, it's not directly related, but USAID's new policy framework has a large focus on private sector and increasing the private sector efficiency in, in the countries in which we work. And I think we do, we're discussing how we do have to be very careful about, with that, taking a do-no-harm approach and ensuring that when we're doing that, that we are not decreasing competition or or doing things that may be harming women or other groups. And so that's something that we're keeping our eye on.
0: Thank you very much. I have been a terrible chair. I've been so engrossed myself in hearing everything that I've uh, not exactly moderated. However, let me take one rapid-fire round of online, and then I will ask our panelists to give 30-second responses. But let me take online first. Lucy, will you read to to us the online questions?
7: Yes, um, so this is one um, from Abdul Sahim Ansari, head of field office at UNDP Nepal for the Nepal Climate Change Support Program. Do you not think that good governance, gender, and social inclusion go side by side? How do women and marginalized communities get entered into the decision-making process for benefit-sharing in Africa? Thanks.
0: Thank you very much, Lucy. Let's come to Peter right here in the front. And then I think I saw a hand somewhere. Yeah.
8: Thank you very much. Peter Matlin, Cornell uh, University. Uh, Terrific presentation. I'm definitely going to follow. uh, Mayor, the suggestion in terms of a New Year's resolution to uh, to uh, spend some time to go through the report. I'm also um, a little awestruck by the gender uh, power in the room in front of me right now. It's very impressive and a bit intimidating. Uh, one comment, uh, one, one question, and the comment is on the social norms issue, uh, there's probably no more patriarchal or set of organizations than religious organizations. And they influence, the, the, in a sense, the cross-cutting question that was asked earlier. They influence all aspects of one's life and how communities organize and, and behave. Um, Michael had made a brief mention of that the World Bank is working with religious organizations to approach the social norms issue and um i would uh, wonder whether or not um it would be useful to explore a collaboration with the berkeley center at georgetown uh one of the leaders there is catherine marshall who has been uh, a participant in if Pre conversations in the past the berkeley center um, uses Um, um, ecumenical approaches to approach different organized religions on a whole range of social, political, conflict um, challenges. And they have a record of generating powerful information and some success. So I think it would be interesting if the bank isn't already doing it. Catherine Marshall is ex-World Bank as well. Uh, whether or not it might be uh, useful to collaborate there. Then a question, and I really am afraid that we've lost the video, uh, for Jemima. Jemima, are you still there? Okay, Uh, if we can't hear you. Okay, well, I'll uh, just listen to my my question. I, I agree with you fully that financial inclusion is one of the most powerful interventions uh, to um, empower and 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 fully mobilize uh, the potential of women in in rural Africa. I'd ask a, a couple of empirical questions. Uh, has your study uh, identified, the share of credit distinguishing between men and women that goes for productive purposes or consumption purposes. Uh, to what extent is credit used for investment for production or towards consumption? Uh, secondly, how does we we're talking about changing the financial institutions. I'd be interested in knowing how the perceptions of risk within uh, financial institutions vary between male and female uh, borrowers? And what's the empirical base for that? What Are, th- are there differences in um, repayment rates between men and, and women? And finally, what are the differences in the terms of loans? Again, distinguishing between men and women in terms of the interest rate charged, the requirement for collateral. And the relationship of the collateral to the value of the loan, the duration of the repayment period and so forth. because it's through changing exactly. those that one can really have influence on the, on the institution. So it's not just so access. Peter, I have but bad the terms news for
0: you. We have exactly one minute left. I have a vision that you and Jemima are going to have an on, offline conversation to go in depth into this, but it's important we hear the questions, all of us. Okay. I would like to come to Sitsi last, and I'm going to ask everyone else to forgive me, but Sitsi, you are the uh, last speaker. Thank you, Rajul. Uh, my name is Sitsima Kombe, and I'm with the Africa office here at FPRI.
4: Um, The report, the ATO, nicely emphasizes the need for better data, especially gender disaggregated data, and the need to link uh, data producers with data users. Related to that, uh, the editors Ruth and Agnes, you did organize a side event in Lome, where you talked about the need to develop uh, a women's empowerment metric that can be incorporated into national statistical systems and you had an opportunity to get feedback from kind of stakeholders, including those working with national statistical bureaus. I'm curious uh, what you think of that feedback
0: that you got and what are the next steps regarding developing this metric? Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Sitsi. I know there are several hands in the room. Please forgive me. We do want to end the session on time and we still have uh, closing remarks. Speakers, I'm going to be very brutal. 30 seconds each, whatever final comment you want to leave. After this is over, we will have a time to informally interact with all of you. So let me begin uh, with our panelists first and give Agnes and Ruth the final word. Let me begin with uh, Meredith and go backwards, and I'll come to Jemima shortly. Thirty okay. seconds
7: each. All right, th- thank you. I'll quickly say on the question of religious leaders, very important. USAID is doing um, work in this area. I think it's a little bit sprinkled around from different funding sources. Uh, my impression is that they are rather small activities here and there, and I'm not sure if it's been um, synthesized somewhere. But it's something that we could look into.
6: Michael? And yeah, we will reach out to Catherine Marshall. That's a great suggestion. Uh, thank you, and we're thinking about this in other programming as well. So. And I encourage you all to read this great report.
5: So uh, just sort of digging into intra-household decision making as one way of understanding agency in the household. This is, for me, why the WEA is so great. Um, But I also would like to share that I think we do need to understand that men and women have using cognitive testing has been very helpful to sort of unpack how people understand decision making. And would love to have an offline conversation with you about some of our cognitive testing of the WEA
0: in different contexts. Thank you very much, Jemima, 30 seconds, and then an offline conversation with Peter.
10: Okay, as you can see, my view has also changed. I have to move to get some power. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'll just say something quick, uh, and we can have this. We know from evidence that um, the repayment rate um, for women are actually much, much higher. Um, than for men. sometimes I think even
4: Michael talked about 99 repayment um, repayment rate. So the the issue is not repayment rates. Um, the issue is not whether conditions are the same for men and women when loans are given at uh, by financial institutions. but the fact that a lot of women often because of other constraints can't
10: meet a lot of those, um, requirement, even when they're the same. For example, collateral. If the, a main form of uh, collateral for agricultural loans is a tighter deed and women don't
4: have a tighter deed, it doesn't matter whether the conditions are the same for men and women. Women are not going to be able to, accessing the, to access those loans. So the idea is that financial institutions need to be innovating
10: around Um, what some of women's uh, positions, conditions, um, uh, types of businesses um, are, because if we wait until all women have a title deed so
4: that they can access uh, financial services, then that's, and I'm not saying that should not change, but at the same time, we need financial institutions to actually be looking at women as already bankable, but being able to actually respond to their um to their priorities and to their and to their constraints. So we can talk more about that, but there's a lot there that financial institutions can actually do without having these
10: standard mechanisms, whereas they know um, that um in a lot of cases women are not going to be able to be meeting
4: um those standard um rules and regulations
0: thank you very much jemima i think all of us want to be a fly on the wall as the two of you have your conversation um let me come to agnes uh ruth or agnes yeah
3: i'll take the one on the women's um the national level measure of women's empowerment um very briefly i think that there was some a lot of there was guarded enthusiasm for it um enthusiasm because it's important to measure progress against women towards women's empowerment goals and it's very nice to hear the people from the national statistics office saying that it is technically feasible but we need consultation as to what the stakeholders really want to measure what does empowerment mean for them and also to assess the cost effectiveness of various approaches but i think it's an exciting thing and that we're going to be doing in the next couple of years
2: just uh, to connect the idea of fixing systems to take up Sarah's challenge of addressing power more systematically. I think that's very important. And in terms of coming back to our framework, the more we can move things into Agnes's beloved purple, into that space of jointness, I think the more we will progress rather than seeing uh, women's empowerment as a threat to men but as something to help everyone to move forward.
0: What an extraordinarily rich discussion. Usman, you have the final words and I don't envy you coming on top of this incredible dialogue. Please, we look forward to hearing from you.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you, Raju. The best way is I just, I just don't add to it, because there's <laughs> nothing I could do. Uh, but um, I will join them in asking you to read the report, and we've really made it very easy for you. You may find this catalog uh, in your packages, or you grab one when you go. Uh, you don't have to carry a heavy report. You go here, you see the report, you put your QR card readers, it's in your iPhone or your Samsung, whatever your smartphone. If you want to send it to anybody, it's free of cost. So, um, please, so look at the catalog, and you have a lot of others of the things that we do that are in there. So thank you for coming. Uh, we're talking about a very important topic, uh, which we know is going to be with us for a while. So progress is being made, but not at, at the rate and the rhythm and the pace that we would like to see. But I think it's going to be one of those things that's going to be extra, you know, going, it's an expo, it's exponential rate of growth as people start building progress, it accelerate. Let me uh, perhaps then take this opportunity also to talk about the next report uh, and the next conference. Um, Equally exciting, uh, it's going to be on uh, economic and sector governance, which is going to be certainly also touching about the monopoly, the monopoly, the marketing boards, and all those different things. And the reason why I would like to do that is that we're in a very different place in Africa now than we were maybe 20, 25 years ago when, when a lot of reforms were made in terms of sector policies and pricing, the power you talked about, exchange rate, all these different things. Uh, it's been 20, 25 years ago. We have a new generation of leaders. They didn't live through that experience. They may be making the same mistakes that were made in the 70s and 80s before we had the reforms of the 90s. Uh, so we don't have any institutional memory for them to know what might have been wrong then could still be wrong now, but could have been wrong then and right now, or right then and wrong now? There's just no way uh, to, to to know that. Yet we're in a much more complex environment, more populistic, uh, pluralistic systems, competitive uh, democratic elections and things like that. So giving in to populism and grabbing uh, in that bag and pulling those old policies with all those uh, uh, very, very costly implications, uh, that is a reality, uh, which we about policy reversal. So it's trying to anticipate again and look back at where we came from, what we achieved in terms of positive reforms, and how we move the agenda future. in the future as the economies and, and, and the, uh, the countries change and transform. So we look forward to uh, another exciting report being edited by our colleagues from uh, the uh, Development and Strategy Governance um, uh, Division at IFPRI. So Daniel Resnick and Shinshen uh, Zhao and a colleague of us from my team in Addis Getao. Uh, I think it's gonna be a great, great report. We don't have a venue yet, so we're talking to several countries. Uh, for now, Angola has stepped on the board and would like to welcome us. Uh, but we'll have to take into consideration visa, Uh, requirements and the cost of it, hotels and other things. So we are working very hard uh, towards it and look forward to seeing you, all of you there. Thank you for coming and also those who are online. And thank you to my sister Jemima for being part of this today. Thank you.